Welcome to the HC Insider Podcast, a podcast dedicated to the commodities sector and the people within it. I'm your host, Paul Chapman. Today, we're talking the fertilizer market, the products themselves, production, the market structure, pricing, and the trading of the fertilizer products. We're looking at the trends over the last decade since the last commodity supercycle and how fertilizers are faring in the current commodity supercycle. Our guest is Andres Santa Cruz. Andres is head of business development for Latin America for Acron, the fertilizer trader, and has had a 10-year career trading fertilizers both in North America and in Latin America. As always, if you enjoy the show, you can support us by leaving a review or a star rating on the platform you're listening on. And I hope you enjoy the episode. Andres, welcome to the show. Paul, thank you for having me. So I'm excited to have the conversation. We're talking about fertilizers, talking about the traded market for fertilizers, uh, what's going on with respect to the super cycle, and also its role in energy transition. Before we dig into the market structure and the, the trends that we're seeing there, would you bear with us and give us a bit of a 101 on the, the ingredients that go into inorganic fertilizers and the, and the basics of, of the why? Of course. Well, let me begin with the very basics. Um, plants need three basic nutrients to grow and to sustain all their life cycle. Nitrogen, phosphorus, and potassium. Uh, these three elements um, in various chemical forms are the three main sources of nutrients for the plant. Uh, the plants, of course, take these nutrients from the soil um, and by doing so, they start depleting these nutrients from the soil where, where they were sowed in the first place. So what we do with fertilizers is uh, work to replenish this uh, nutrient uh, content in the soil and allow it to be reused over time. Fertilizers will be grouped uh, in these three um, categories. So we have nitrogen fertilizers, we have phosphorus fertilizers, we have potassium fertilizers, and we have also blends among these three groups. Um, but in general, so it's, it's, I, I, I like to compare this to the example of having money in your bank account. If you start withdrawing money from the bank account, which is what the plant does when it's growing up, it's taking out nutrients from the soil. At some point, you need to put money back in into your bank account. So that's what we do with the fertilizers. We um, um, give back to the soil that what the plant has taken out and try to, to keep a balance. So this is the NPK. There's lots of other micronutrients that go in, but I think we're just going to focus on those three. So nitrogen, potassium, and phosphate. Where do each of those come from? Because they come from very different either chemical processes or from the mining industry per se. Um, can you just give us you know, how those things are produced and then at what point in kind of the value chain they go into those blends or they're, they're combined together to go onto the actual soil? Right. Uh, well, and, and you're right. There are numerous others, uh, micro elements and, and that are added, are added to the fertilizer uh, uh, blends. But out of the three groups that I described, both phosphates and potassium, they are mined out from, from deposits. Um, phosphorus is, um, the, the raw material of phosphorus is, is known as uh, phosphate rock which are sedimentations uh, from ancient times when the oceans started to, to dry up and, and leave the deposits of, of phosphate rock. And that rock is mined out and then goes through 
a beneficiation process and we have the finalized fertilizers uh, with phosphates. I'm super simplifying the process. Uh, potassium is the same, deposits of, of, of salt uh, that are mined out and then produced into finalized fertilizers. Nitrogen, on the other hand, is different. And uh, nitrogen fertilizers uh, are not mined. They are produced and uh, synthesized with uh, chemical reactions uh, that are designed to capture the nitrogen from basically from the atmosphere, from, 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 from the breathing air that we all share. Um, and these reactions, uh, these chemical processes were invented uh, in the early uh, 19th uh, century for, for, um, for urea and then in the early 20th century for ammonia. Um, and, uh, well, they've been perfected over time, but basically the nitrogen fertilizer differentiates from the other two in being a synthetic, uh, process, uh, to, to produce these, these compounds that are otherwise found in nature, but in low quantities. And that's, so this is the harbor process basics, um, and is incredibly energy intensive. Uh, you know, we've covered the ammonia market on a previous episode and the basic need for that to uh, become greener, that creates anhydrous ammonia, which is, for the most part, how that nitrogen is fixed and then stored, right, or transported. Right. So it, it is, it is, um, ammonia is the, the basics of, the, the, the basic, um, the angular stone, let's say, of the nitrogen fertilizer industry. Out of the ammonia, we derive all other nitrogen fertilizers that are utilized in the market, such as urea, ammonium nitrate, or liquid blends of these two, which we call UAN, urea ammonium nitrate uh, solutions, and so forth. <clears throat> but these are the most uh, well-known examples. Um, look, uh, ammonia, you're correct, is, is the uh, uh, harbor Bosch reaction was uh, designed by the Germans actually to produce um, explosives in World War One because they didn't have access to other to other raw materials at the time, and then it evolved as a process to be used in agriculture. Um, it is uh, it's not that it's expensive to transport it. Uh, the problem is uh, that it's not very environmentally friendly to produce. So you're calling you're you're talking about the development of green ammonia. We're a little bit going fast and taking a few steps in the discussion. But the idea with the green ammonia is to have a more environmentally friendly, more efficient ways of capturing that nitrogen from the atmosphere, uh, using not uh, hydrocarbons as the main source of energy, but uh, alternative um, energy production uh, processes to like eolic or electrolysis um, uh, uh, industrial processes. But, but anyways, the, the, the basics of uh, in fertilizers, the basics is still having ammonia and from ammonia uh, deriving into other fertilizers. Over time, this hasn't changed much. We just have made a little bit more efficient the process of producing ammonia and producing urea, ammonia nitrate, and so on and so forth. Um, but yeah, the production itself has not changed and the profile has not changed. And with green ammonia, it won't change. It will, will still produce the same fertilizers, but via more environmentally friendly process. So when, so you've got the ammonia in its various forms, you've got potassium, mined as potash, you've got phosphates coming from this phosphate rock. 
how does it work? Do you have different companies mining or producing one of those three legs to the stool? And who is blending those? You know, talk about, tell us how the, the basic market structure of fertilizer right now. Right. So we need to go to geography a little bit. So since uh, phosphates and potassium are mined out of the ground, then you have to go to the countries that were blessed with large deposits for those products. So there are a few examples. Morocco uh, has one of the biggest uh, deposits of phosphate rock in the world. They might have reserves for at least five centuries, six centuries um, still. So Morocco has developed a fertilizing industry that revolves around the production of phosphate-based fertilizers. When I'm saying phosphate fertilizers, it doesn't mean that it, they don't have nitrogen as well or potassium, but the, 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 the main source of nutrients out of these fertilizers are phosphates. And uh, Russia, for instance, is very strong on potassium because they have large deposits of, of, of uh, potassium salts, like um, Canada um, as well. So uh, when we're talking about a phosphate and potassium, we're talking about very uh, focused and clearly defined geographical um, spots around the world where these fertilizers are produced. When we talk about nitrogen, really, uh, any country, and, and that's why this, the, the market for nitrogen is much more volatile, is because so many countries and so many companies let's call people, can actually produce nitrogen regardless of the location. You just need access to competitive gas um, or, or carbon, but it does not widely use. And gas is more widely available than a certain deposit uh, uh, of phosphate rock and potassium. So you see urea production being done in a wide range of countries, from India to China, Russia itself, and even some countries in, in Latin America. And of course, the U.S. Um, so I'm just giving you a broad, a broad description. Now you are asking about the blends. Blends can be done in two ways. You can, uh, and this is as simple as I am describing it. You can take a nitrogen fertilizer and a phosphorus fertilizer. The fertilizer is coming in a granule form of various specifications. But just think about granules ranging from one to four millimeters in size. And you have them there. Uh, so they can either be blended, physically blended, like putting them into a stirrer, putting X parts of nitrogen, X parts of phosphates, and then you have a nitrogen phosphate of blend. Um, the way that these blends are designed are, are based on the studies that are mining X crop needs X um, nutrient profile. Um, instead of going to the field and applying the nitrogen first and then the phosphate in a separate application, you just go and apply the blend once. So you save money by doing one application instead of two. So that's the most basic um, way of doing it, and it's still widely used. Now, some companies have developed a chemical processes in which they produce blends that are done at a chemical level. So you don't you don't blend two physical products. You, you, you start from the raw materials. You incorporate the chemistry so that in a single granule, a blend of nutrients comes out. But again, the concept is the same. You're just taking the raw materials in the... It's like doing a, a cake. You have a recipe. You have to add X parts of this, X parts of that, and you, you, have, you have a blend, whether it's physical or chemical. So, okay, so how... How integrated is this market? Um, you know, who's who effectively is doing the blending? 
can you just talk to the, to us about that? Look, the the blending is done more at the demand side more than at the offer. Countries specialize in different products depending on the natural resources that they have at hand. So um, you will have Russia. Uh, I'm just going to speak about the main exporters of fertilizers in the world. So you have um, Russia with uh, actually strong production of all three sources of fertilizers, nitrogen, phosphates, and potassium, but they sell it separate. Uh, and so does China, so does the U.S. Um, countries, uh, the countries that are importing these fertilizers are actually the ones doing the blends. You will see the U.S., which is one of the biggest demand markets for fertilizers in the world, and Brazil, um, the buyers, the companies that are active in these markets will go to the international market, will buy the phosphates, the nitrogen, the potassium, and will incorporate those products into specific plants needed for their markets using their own infrastructure. Um, of course, as I mentioned before, some of the plants come already in chemical form and they import it in that way uh, and incorporate it also with other nutrients locally. But uh, the production of fertilizers focuses on um, the simplest form of the fertilizers. And these fertilizers are incorporated or blended together uh, in the destination markets. That's how, in general, it works. So that would be cooperatives or the traders or the big ag houses that are blending that in-country. And then that's their farm input business that obviously gets them access to the outputs for the most part. That's correct, and we'll talk about this a little bit later, but not only co-ops and, and houses, but the producers themselves that have started to invest in distribution and retail in, in, um, in the uh, destination countries. Uh, but yes, in general, you're correct in what you just uh, described. So that's, well, yeah, as you say, we'll come on to that. That's where, you know, the, the pricing structure comes in. Just so in terms of the actual pricing itself, um, how does that work? Are there? I know there have been, you know, <clears throat> multiple attempts to sort of create more vibrant derivative markets around this. But you know, there's a spot price for each of those three key products or, and their derivatives. Talk to us a bit about just you know how the pricing works today. Well, um, fertilizer well, is a commodities market, so the basics apply it's just like with oil or any other commodity that you can think of. It's offer demand, uh, volatility depends on how many players are in the market, and it, you can apply both fundamental and technical analysis to forecasting prices. Uh, the difference with other ag commodity markets that are much more efficient, like corn or soybeans or coffee that are trading in the stock market uh, uh, very actively and and, and uh, in a very efficient way, is that the fertilizer market, number one, has a, a lower number of players. You can, uh, it's a very, in terms of players, and even in terms of people actively trading these products, it's a small industry. Volumes are big, of course, but you can, you can, you can think of, uh, uh, I'm going to adventure a number here, but if you compare the amount of people, the amount of people trading soya beans in the world today, from retail traders up to corporate uh, big outhouses, if you compare the number in fertilizers, maybe we're just 20% of, of, of the amount of people and companies uh, actively trading. So uh, that also caused for this industry to continue being old fashioned. It's a people um, business, 
we know each other is based on relationships and still done even today, still done the old fashioned way. Businesses are closed, shaking hands. Well, that was before COVID, but let's say virtually shaking hands and, and doing one-to-one over-the-counter transactions. There's been an attempt to introduce fertilizers into the derivatives market. 10 years ago, it started uh, as a over-the-counter trading, which is, let's say, uh, somehow active today, and even into the um, uh, Chicago Board of Trade. Um, some papers of urea, for instance, or UAN can be traded there. But the liquidity continues to be limited um, and limited mainly to the players that are in the business. A few banks have tried to get into it. A few funds have tried to get into it. But um, it continues to be a, a very, it's a very simple business, but it's not very well known to the international finance players, which are accustomed to play with corn or soybeans, right? It's interesting as well, isn't it? Because that factor both contributes to incredible gains that we've heard of, you know, a decade ago, right? I remember being at a fertilizer conference in Boston and it was, you know, mm-hmm. uh, <laughs> it was a very successful time for the community, <laughs> you know, and then also, um, you know, really lean years just because you do, it's such a tight market. Also, what's fascinating as well, I think, just to point out, is that it's an entirely different suite of trading companies that are, for the most part, dedicated to fertilizers and some associated products like sulfuric acid, so forth. But what we've not, you've seen, you know, all of the ag houses have either had or have fertilizer trading businesses, again, you know, small in number of people. Um, but it's not like we've seen the big sort of energy trading houses or cross commodity trading houses really lean into fertilizer. It's still very much dominated by a few specialized firms. Why is that? Well, you know, I, I had the opportunity to work for two big ad houses in the past. I, I spent many years with um, ADM um, and then with Louis Dreyfus. And they both, to a certain extent, dropped their fertilizer business. The main reason was because the risk profile of the fertilizer business is uh, is entirely different from that of grains. Compact houses are accustomed to hedge all the risk uh, and have the access to liquidity markets that allows you to leave the position any at any time of the day or night. Um, so basically, uh, I don't want to get technical on trading, but just uh, the ag houses uh, hedge their physical positions with future positions in the um, and in Chicago and other stock markets, and they manage to um, um, neutralize the risks of price variations. You cannot do that in fertilizer because there is just not enough liquidity for it, uh, and so you need to have a bigger appetite for risk. Uh, companies need to carry a heavier balance sheet on fertilizer inventories. Um, and a longer cycle to uh, get out of a position. So uh, the ag houses appetite for the business dropped. They need it still, but they don't want the risk in their, into the, their balance sheet. Um, and that's why the business have remained mainly with fertilizer producers, which uh, have the financial muscle to deal with the risk, but also have the benefit of the margins in production in general. Producing fertilizers 
is profitable, very profitable. It's very capital intensive, but it gives you good margins. Um, and on the other side, uh, farmers and distributors have also been playing with the fertilizer because they needed that they are accustomed at the cycles and the risk of having inventories in fertilizers. So um, that's the reason why um, I believe, based on my experience, fertilizers have not yet get, got into integrated into, into this um, uh, lively and efficient trading um, structure that we see in other commodities. I want to move on to kind of the last decade and the major trends. What have the producers been doing? What have the farmers been doing to, to get you know, both sides trying to, as you say, minimize that risk, get closer to either the producers or the producers get closer to the to the farmers. Um, so just take us back to the last commodity super cycle. Um, fertilizers was a very buoyant market. Can you just starting from there, take us over, take us through the, the major trends that have happened up to this current super cycle? Well, yeah, I mean, let's go back. Uh, let's rewind time back to 2008. Um, I just joined the industry back then, and I joined just after the crash of the prices. The last super cycle was, was uh, and, and the last super cycle and, and the subsequent crash was uh, driven by tremendous speculation in the market and other factors in, in other markets, just the, the real estate crisis at the time, the subprime debt crisis, and uh, everybody was very optimistic before that, and then everything crashed and, and things just went south for uh, commodities industries as well. Back then, the market was structured in a way that is different today. Let me explain you. We, you have, you have um, four main players in this market. You have the producer of the fertilizer. You have then um, the traders, house, trading houses, which are kind of like an intermediary. The trader uh, goes and buys from the producer, manages risk, because it's, it's long with fertilizers or short at times, but manages risk and provides liquidity and then sells to importers, which are the third player and those importers, which may be wholesalers or retailers end up selling to the farm. Last uh, uh, player into this uh, simplified value chain that I'm describing. Back then you had very strong trading houses being the main uh, player of the, of the business. The trading houses were uh, connecting producers that were very unaware of the culture and the um, behavior and how to approach farmers and customers in destination markets. So the traders were actually buying and helping the producers to make the volume and providing liquidity to the market. When the crash came, of course, uh, a lot of trading houses suffered from defaults, huge defaults from, from their customers which couldn't pay and, and, and toxic inventories. And, and that process started, well, that situation started a process over time, over the last 10 years in which um, the producers understood that they, or, or concluded, not understood, they concluded that it would be better off for them, instead of depending on intermediaries, just to go down the value chain and verticalize. So, uh, after that crash, and when prices went very low, um, producers needed to uh, do two things, increase their volumes, increase the, the volumes which they were selling the fertilizers, and also make that, that trend, the volume growth, 
much more predictable. So producers concluded, hey, I need to keep my machine running. So how do I do that? Instead of selling to traders that buy when it, whenever they want, I'm just going to buy the distribution um, uh, channels in countries like Brazil or the US or in Africa and other countries in Latin America. And I'm going to own the demand. And I'm going to send as many fertilizers as I want. I would strategically place them in the destination markets and continue selling. Um, and that was the case for, uh, for instance, Yara was one of the first ones to do that move. Yara went ahead and bought all the infrastructure uh, and, and the blending plants of Bunge in Brazil, which was huge. And, and they did that. Um, and then others followed. Uh, Mosaic bought the assets of ADM. And even, even recently, as, <laughs> look, as recent as yesterday, we, we learned about Eurochem, one of the biggest Russian producers buying a distribution asset, uh, second distribution asset in Brazil. That, that's been the progression over time. In the last 10 years, the trader houses went from liquidity, um, important uh, factors for, for increasing liquidity in the market. They went down and they downsized to being basically a, a financing tool for the importers. And then we saw trading houses uh, disappearing from the market even. I mean, we, uh, to give you an example, uh, Transamonia, which will is now known as Tramo, entirely left the business. And he was, uh, now he does other businesses in energy and, and sulfuric acid, but left the fertilizer business. And he was a gigantic trading house back in the day. Uh, some trading houses remain, of course, and they are super important in the market, but the game is entirely different today. You see all the producers uh, putting uh, hands and feet into the destination markets and even competing directly with trading houses. So, um, and that is all for the need of um, um, keep shipping product. For the producer, the plant cannot stop. The mine cannot stop. It has to all the time be running so that it's a profitable market. That makes sense when the prices are low. Now, we are in a new super cycle. And this new super cycle is driven by different reasons. Not a speculation. It's just lack of preparedness in, in, in all of the supply chain in the world after this pandemic um, hit us all. Um, and we can get into more detail into that. But now we're in a, in a price uh, surge. We saw prices increasing threefold, fourfold uh, in the last three months. And that's across each product. That's because that, well, obviously I, I, I intuitively get the energy story behind the ammonia products. But we're also seeing that in in potash and in uh, phosphate rock as well, in phosphates and, and potassium as well. Yeah, well, you know, we, we had a, a work, we just uh, had an internal joke, which is we shouldn't be joking about this because high prices do affect people. But this is like the prices were going up so fast. And it's like, look, which is just so which we, we just um, should come out with a single price for any fertilizer because everything went up, right? It's like, okay, so fertilizer is going to be $100, whatever it is. But yes, everything went up. Um, energy affected, uh, and let's be specific, gas prices affected nitrogen. Uh, but not only that, I mean, they, they, it's not only about the energy prices, it's about the lack of vessels, the lack of containers, uh, um, and the lack of uh, the possibility to bring product from point A to point B that also uh, increased um, prices. 
So uh, potassium and, and phosphates uh, followed, followed suit. The, the, the sector that has been affected the most heavily by, by the high the surge in prices is nitrogen, but phosphates and potassium has been just followed right behind nitrogen. Um, and also don't forget that these markets are widely integrated. You cannot fertilize only with nitrogen. You need three of them. You need M, P, and K. So if one goes tremendously high, the others are going to follow suit, uh, especially in the kind of situation that we're living today. So, um, but what I, the point that I wanted to make is that in this scenario of higher prices, well, there is more money to be distributed among the players. That's why the trading houses, in my opinion, are going to enter into a new cycle and the trading houses are going to be more important, uh, are going to regain relevance um, or, or, or uh, you know, try to get back to the relevance that they had 10 years ago. Um, also, uh, because not only uh, there is uh, more space for them in the trading value chain, but we are seeing a very fragmented work geopolitically speaking. Uh, so you see uh, Russia colliding with uh, the West, China colliding with the West. And let's not forget, China and Russia are not only world powers, but also uh, one of the main producers of fertilizers in the world. So it, it wouldn't be a surprise that down the road, all this integration that I've described of producers investing in, distribu in, in destination markets could be somehow interrupted or disrupted by geopolitical conflicts. And that's where the traders are going to have an opportunity, you see? I mean, we, we're certainly seeing this and it's, you know, as always, as the talent story behind this is that just as, you know, the, the, uh, the market had underinvested in the traders, um, there are fewer traders today. And, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's, it is an incredibly tight space for talent as well. Are you seeing a new set of players or will it be a resurgence of you know the, the established but kind of you know a bit beaten up over the last decade trading houses? And secondly, will this be the time when actually that derivatives market really starts to take off? Because organizations, you know, the volatility is such that there's a real demand for hedging. It, there is, and I hope. Look, that's my hope. I like. Um, I think the market needs to be more efficient. And everybody would be benefit if uh, a derivatives market, a robust derivatives market develops out of this. It's too early to tell. So far, um, I think that uh, the same players are repositioning themselves. I don't see a whole lot of new companies trying to get in or get back in uh, into, the, um, into the fertilizer trading business. Mm. As I told you, it's, it's a small industry and, and the situation right now is so uncertain and so rapidly changing that um, I don't think that other companies from other sectors want, uh, uh, want to get in right now. They want just to protect their, their ongoing businesses. But who knows? Uh, who knows? I, I really sincerely hope that uh, more trading actors uh, come into play and, and, and we see a more vi uh, revitalized, let's say, trading interest in, in fertilizers. Look, we even see now um, derivatives being traded for water in California. I don't know. I saw that news report six months ago or so. I don't know how, how well that is going. But Jesus Christ, if we're going to be trading futures for water, it's about time that we are definitely trading futures for urea, phosphate, and potassium. Um, 
but uh, let's let's see. Let's see how that goes. And it is my hope that actually we're going to see a more active marketing drive. Mm. Well, do you have any sense of why we haven't seen the uptake? Is it that the it doesn't suit the established players or they just don't have the, the technical capability to actually support a derivatives desk? They don't have the sort of the, 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 the mid and back office systems that are required. You know, what what is that hold up that's somewhat unique to fertilizers, to be frank? Well, look, in general, uh, everybody was comfortable how things were going. And uh, then let's focus on the recent price um, super cycle. It's just too soon. Nobody has had the time to digest what happened in the last quarter. Uh, I mean, look, everybody's making money. Everybody, everybody, producers, traders, importers, distributors, and farmers. Um, The the, the problem is going to be at the table in households that are going to have to pay more for food. But in, in general, the, the value chain is healthy today, but nobody's celebrating because everybody is, is happy with the results, but everybody's scared of what's coming next. So um, I think the market is digesting what's happening right now and trying to understand how are we going to land this plane? Don't get me wrong. I mean, make no mistake, everything that goes up goes down. That is for sure. Uh, what we have to make sure is that all these prices that went up, they they soften over time and we avoid a crash like the, like the one that happened in 2008, which would be disastrous and it would just wipe out half of the distributors in the value chain. And that's in no one's interest. So let give it time. <laughs> we, we, we have experienced a, a crazy quarter and... Um, all this may translate into new actors and more active derivative markets, but I think um, everybody just needs to see how 2022 is going to start off and, 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 and maybe we'll see more players coming in. But right now, everybody's just like in, in shock and, and trying to digest what just happened. Yeah, I, I know that's very hard to sort of divine and tease apart, but what is the thesis, if there is one out there, between what's a long-term structural shift in demand and, and supply that points to higher prices for the long term and what is just particularly around the supply chain shocks as a result of COVID and some of this geopolitical uncertainty? Is there a consensus about whether this is going to be a long-term or, or just short-term supply shocks or, shocks or just no consensus at all. Because it does, you know, it does seem, you can see a clear story in mining um, on the metals side where you've had a decade of underinvestment and an incredible increase in demand for the battery metals. There's a story certainly in the hydrocarbon world where you've again had really low prices for a very long time and very little investment and both in midstream and in production, it seems in, I just, I can't quite see that same story in the ag world where, um, I don't know, are we seeing continued rapid increases in demand for crops that would support this? What's the thesis out there? What's the consensus if there is one? No, I mean, you're right. I mean, the price went up, but it's not that the world population duplicated in the last year, let alone the last quarter. So what is this sustain, how sustainable is this for, for the ag um, sector? I will say that uh, there is space and there is a certain, an almost certain chance that prices need to soften and cool off. 
uh, once uh, once uh, the main thing that needs to normalize for that to happen is um, the logistical uh, the logistical situation. People don't really realize how bad it is, but a lot of vessels were scrapped during 2020. Containers were misplaced, and it's, it, it takes years, not months, to recover the capacity that was lost. Um, and and I think I mean energy energy is going to normalize, and fertilizer should come off. Um, are we going to go back to today? Urea is about I mean depending on the origin or, or who you ask, it's going to be in the range of eight hundred hundred and fifty dollars for. Um, it was two hundred uh, at the beginning of the year. Are we going to go back to 200? No, I don't think so. Not anytime soon. Um, prices will need to stabilize. Uh, but in the short term, because I'm, look, I'm done with forecasting <laughs> beyond <laughs> six months. I've been, yeah. no, I don't, I, I, no, really, because there, no one has idea. And if somebody tells you, they're just lying or making crazy uh, predictions to, to participate in your podcast. I'll be brutally honest. We're not making predictions beyond six months. Um, but uh, what happens right now is that we see different governments uh, putting money into people's pockets. I, mean, I agree that governments already did that during COVID, but they're going to have to step in again. And, and, and put uh, subsidies into place so that people can still bring and put bread on the table. Um, prices are not going to cool off quickly. Um, and all the players and I think all the economic system um, is going to try to bring stability. The, what, what, please don't get me wrong, but I'm going to say, uh, of course, high prices are a problem. But the worst thing that can happen is um, volatility and, and, and nervousness in the market. Um, even, even at high prices, what the world needs is a stability, is a sense of knowing where, where are we at and, and have a sense of what we can put our, our feet on. And the prices are what they are right now. In the, there is the best interest for the whole system for prices to normalize slowly. Uh, and I think that everybody's going to work for that. And, and if uh, crops do not um, uh, replicate these rapid surge in prices, then some, some, some sort of subsidies are going to have to step in. The role of government here, because that's kind of could be kind of the, the, the wild outside player. You know, we're talking about food, food supply, food security. You know, you're already seeing headlines. I've seen headlines in the UK around Europe of, you know, um, production shutting down or, or, or both fertilizer as a result of energy prices, but also the knock-on effect on, on food production. <clears throat> Could we see a world where government starts se stepping in to secure supplies of fertilizer um, or, or it starts to become somewhat of a geopolitical tool um, because these prices are so high? Well, yeah, and, and as a matter of fact, it's, it's already happening. Um, you say China suspended the export of fertilizers, virtually, uh, of all fertilizers, until uh, next year, Q2. Uh, Russia imposed uh, restrictions, not, not a full ban, but restrictions on, on fertilizers. And both strategies were done to keep the local farmers at a competitive um, competitive costs and being able to to keep food uh, prices um, controlled so 
that created, of course, an additional factor of raising prices internationally uh, while controlling the situation domestically. So you see that, and, and these are the governments um, stepping in. China, virtually all companies are somehow related to the government. In Russia, no. I mean, you, of course, have private companies, but uh, the government uh, issued a directive saying, look, you can export only so much and after you fulfill quotas for our domestic farmers. And there is a geopolitical background into that. Uh, absolutely. Um, uh, uh, Russia and, and, and China, they, you know, as I explained before, they are uh, in contradiction in many ways with the West and they are one of the main fertilizer producers. So, of course, it's, it's a strategic asset that they will need to use, A, for the benefit of their own populations, which is natural and expected, but also will create an impact into other markets um, that need those fertilizers and will end up paying more uh, for them. So governments are doing are taking measures to, to guarantee a healthy supply of fertilizers. We cannot feed the world today without the use of fertilizers. That's clear. Uh, and that's a, a huge worry for uh, Brazil, for example. Brazil is a market of 40 million tons. Hey, they import 70% of that. Uh, and, and if that fertilizer is not present, then their economy goes south. Mm. How, how much of that is, just can you uh, orientate us, how much of, of that is, what percentage of that is the world supply? If we talk about nutrient million of tons, um, adding up uh, potassium oxide, uh, a, a, a phosphorus oxide, and nitrogen, which are the main uh, basic molecules of, 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 of nutrient fertilizers, we're talking about a, a, a demand of 200 220 million tons of nutrients. Um, trying to extrapolate that to the total number of metric tons uh, of product, you need to make a rough estimation multiplying this by three, by a factor of three, more or less. So we're talking about um, around 700, 800 uh, uh, millions of metric tons of fertilizers being, being demanded, I'm saying offer and demanded, uh, offer and demand. Um, in the world. So, so it's, it's, it's 5%. Look, gigantic nonetheless. Let, uh, let me just put this in perspective. Take Latin America. Brazil consumes nearly 40 million tons of fertilizers. The second biggest market in Latin America is uh, Mexico. Mexico consumes 8 million tons of fertilizers. And then everything is smaller than that. So you can see how important and relevant Brazil is. Um, India, Brazil, and the US are maybe the three main drivers um, in the demand side of the market. Um, uh, when, when, when they are getting or out of the market, the prices react. And the US has uh, got more than 70 million tons of fertilizers demand, and, and India is, is, is huge. And urea alone, they consume nearly 30 million tons of urea um, um, uh, only in urea per, per year. Very much a strategic consideration, I guess, is the, uh, the conclusion to that one, right? Yeah. So, so look, the, 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 what I'm saying is that uh, governments on the offer side are taking protectionist measures, uh, trying to protect their own domestic markets and, and profit from, of course, the opportunity of selling this to the world. Um, 
and the demand uh, markets are trying to take defensive matters, uh, defensive measures, saying, "Hey, I need the fertilizers here at home," and and it much depends how you are, uh, align yourself geopolitically. If a country goes in collision with Russia and China, well, it's going to have limited uh, source of uh, source of fertilizers. Um, and maybe oversimplifying this is much more complex, and I don't want to get into political. I'm not a political scientist, but food is an essential part of life. Um, it seems obvious, but look, nobody wants people on the streets uh, yelling and throwing rocks because food is too expensive. And it's a real risk today. So that's why I believe uh, governments will start have to react and impose the subsidies in the demand markets uh, so as to prevent uh, a, a sharp increase, further increase in, in, in households' uh, uh, cost of food. Yeah, adding adding further uncertainty and volatility to the market, and uh, increasing the role of of traders. Um, in the in the in the couple of minutes we have left, um, I just wanted to sort of shift towards looking at the future. Um, we we've obviously we as HC Insider Podcast have covered green ammonia with Christoph Savvy of of Tramo. Um, we also recently had Barrett Barr on of Syngenta talking about the technological advan ad advances in the agri world. And one of the things he said was becoming more and more specific about the nutrients crops need, going from the field level down to not even the row level, going down to the individual plant level. What, you know, I know, I know this is, 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 is a sort of a big question, but when you look to 10 years forwards, do you think there will be any fundamental changes in how fertilizers are created, applied? You know, what changes do you potentially see, if any? Look, uh, it's a very good question. Fertilizers have not changed for over a century, fundamentally speaking. Yes, the production processes have, have become more efficient. Um, yes, they are more widely available. And yet, my, grand, my grandfather was a farmer. And my grandfather was fertilizing in the very same way that farmers are fertilizing today. And this, I'm telling you, 70 or 80 years ago. Urea is the same urea. The urea that we sell today is the same urea 100 years ago. So this industry is overdue for a technological um, uh, breakthrough. And companies have tried to, in general, to invest in, in more efficient fertilizers or in better ways to apply it to the plant. But I, I really think that no one has paid sufficient attention into changing the way that we're bringing nutrients to, to, to the farmland. We all know that food is wasted and that extensive agriculture is not sustainable. Um, I mean, not in the way that is being done in the last uh, 50 years. We cannot keep cutting trees to expand fields. We just have to make them more efficient. So, look, I work in the fertilizer industry, so I support and I, I am a fully convinced of what the green ammonia role will have. Uh, it is a super important um, initiative. Um, for fuels in, in, in principle, but it's also going to be a more efficient source for, for um, fertilizer production. Um, I do believe, however, that the real breakthrough is going to come through biotechnology. Um, uh, the way that plants absorb nutrients, the way that um, uh, nutrients can be delivered and fixed to the plant 
through biotechnology advancements are going to be key in making for, um, uh, crops more efficient. And I think that's where the revolution is going to come. Think of the car industry. Five years ago, it's not 10, five years ago, we were still thinking about electric cars being a novelty. Now we know that beyond 2030 or 2035, many countries and states in the, in the US are not going to be producing combustion um, engine cars, only electric. Well, you know, I think in fertilizers, we, um, I don't know what the breakthrough is going to be, but I am certain that this industry is overdue for such a breakthrough. Um, and, 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 and companies are committed to that, but, but really we need to have a extremely different mindset because the, the products are fundamentally the same. They haven't changed over time. Yeah. Well, it has been a really fascinating discussion. I've really appreciated you gently guiding us through the, the market for fertilizer and all of the trends that, you know, in, in the, in the matter of a uh, 45 minutes or so, um, so a testament to you. And look, I, I, I look forward to having you back on in a year or two and we'll see where the market is because it's, you know, I think as you've highlighted, it's an extremely volatile space, um, you know, one that uh, has big highs and, and big lows, but is so crucial to to all of us, um, you know, and, and we're already seeing that in it appearing on the front pages of newspapers already. So, you know, Andres, thanks very much for your time. Paul, it's been a pleasure. Thank you so much uh, for this space uh, to share these ideas and thoughts about the market. And as always, I'll, I'll, I'll be delighted to join you again. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this episode and want to support the show, please give us a positive review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. To find out more about HC Insider and HC Group, a search and advisory firm dedicated to the commodity markets, visit our website at www.hcgroup.global. There you can find out more about our services and our offices around the world. There you can also find more content from interviews to insight pieces to more podcasts focused on the commodity value chains. Thanks again for listening.